Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I think that there's sort of a, a moment for the international community to decide whether they want to have much more aggressive pushback against these military regimes or face the risk of more countries being toppled. Hello and welcome to Behind the Lines, the new geopolitics podcast with me, Arthur Snell. I'm a former diplomat who now works as a consultant, writer and podcaster. I'm active in international affairs from Ukraine to Yemen and a few places in between. In this podcast, I'll be talking to the best informed people out there about geopolitics, about the big things shaking our world now and about the things that will be in the future. We're going Behind the Lines. On the 30th of August this year, a military coup took place in Gabon in West Africa, dislodging the president, Ali Bongo, whose family has controlled that country for nearly 60 years. That military takeover in Gabon followed swiftly on the heels of a coup in Niger a month earlier. And there seems to have been a spate of these in the Sahel region of Africa. Indeed, within a period of just over two years, Every country in a 5,000-kilometer line from Conakry on Africa's west coast to Port Sudan on the east has experienced a military coup. And there's a bigger picture here. Democracy around the world isn't doing very well. In the United States, Donald Trump's chaotic rule ended in rejected election results and a violent insurrection. In Britain, we have had multiple prime ministers without a general election. Across Europe, authoritarian populists contest and sometimes win elections. In Hungary, Poland, Israel and Turkey, we see independent institutions under threat and in some cases entirely circumscribed. And of course, in Ukraine, democracy is fighting for its life against a militarized fascist regime. So this week, I wanted to get the big picture to understand what is the health of global democracy and what are its prospects. 
And who better to talk to about this than Professor Brian Class? He's an expert on African coups, a politics professor at University College London, and author of the brilliant book Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. I hope you'll find our conversation interesting. It was, and this surprised me, a lot more encouraging than I'd expected. So this is Behind the Lines, Episode 4, The Threats to Global Democracy. So I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Brian Class, who is an expert in democracy and the threats to it. And Brian, we're speaking just uh, a week or two after a coup in Gabon. But of course, that followed hot on the heels of a coup in Niger. And if you look at a map now of Africa and colour in the countries that have experienced coups just in the last two or three years, you, you can colour in a large proportion of West and Central Africa. So, so what's going on here? Why have there been so many of these, um, these events in, in recent months? Well, if you zoom out from the sort of 1960s and 70s, which is sort of the heyday of African coups, there are still a lot fewer of them now than there used to be. So that's the good news. The bad news is that there's been a big spike in the last sort of two to three years. And some people call this a coup contagion, um, where there's sort of this you know, Arab Spring style effect where you have one country that gets toppled and then, you know, the next one and so on. Um, and and that, that contagion, I think, is real. And I think it's tied to what's called an anti-coup norm being eroded. So what I mean by that is that the African Union and Western powers for a long time really tried to make some serious efforts to create a clear message that if you take power in a coup, you will be ostracized and basically become an international pariah. Uh, you know, automatic expulsion from the African Union, um, you'll have you know sort of no seat at the table, as it were. And I think that that norm has been really weakened by the effects of the coups to the individuals who have perpetrated them. In other words, those people who have taken power have benefited personally so much in this wave of coups that the anti-coup norm just isn't doing the job it used to. So I think it's a straight-up cost-benefit uh, analysis. And if you're sort of a, a mid-level officer or a, or a you know, high-level officer in an African military, the idea of being president or being in a, a military regime is often much more attractive than, than sort of middling pay um, in a broken country where you're taken for granted. And that point about the, the norms being broken, it's certainly the case that you can, you can track these coups um, often from one country to, to a neighbor. Um, but obviously, there will be very local re resonances and local reasons for any individual um, coup happening. But I want to talk a bit about the sort of the international aspect of this. So when, when the coup occurred in Niger, people noticed that there were sort of crowds in the street waving Russian flags and, 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 and sort of protesting against France, which of course is the former colonial power there. Is, is some of this being sort of stage managed from the outside or is that a too, too sort of simple, simplistic kind of view from, from afar? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a, a tendency anytime a major event happens in a country that very few people know about for what I call geopolitical bias to kick, to kick in. And what I basically mean by that is that, you know, 
there's a lot of people around the world who hear the news, Niger coup, see a few people waving Russian flags and instantly think Russia organized this. Uh, it's this massive you know, blow in the geopolitical chess match. They're anti-French, which is true. Um, you know, and therefore, this is some you know, West versus Russia um, playing out in, in Niger. There is some truth to that in the sense that obviously, you know, the, the sort of geopolitical alignment of these countries will shift as a result of the coups. And, and of course, Russia is very eager to peel away military regimes that, that the West might be less keen to do business with or to at least um, try to make a symbolic uh, sort of slap on the wrist, as it were, after the coup happens. However, most of the time, coups have much more straightforward local causes. And one of the things that often happens is coup plotters need a pretext, right? They, they need a reason to officially say why the coup is necessary. And that can be quite flimsy at times. Very often, coup pretexts are totally untruthful. I have, in my own research, interviewed lots of coup plotters. I, my PhD, I was looking at um, you know, people who overthrew governments or attempted to, um, failed coup plotters, successful coup plotters, etc. And I will tell you this, they will never tell you that the reason why they did the coup is because they wanted power and money. But that's often why they do it, right? So they always come up with some sort of flowery answer. This is about restoring democracy or bringing power back to the people or, you know, breaking with the colonial power, whatever it is. Most of the time, it is a pretty straightforward power grab by people who want to make a hell of a lot more money um, by being in charge of a country. And, you know, it's worth keeping in mind, you know, countries like Niger are very poor, but if you are in charge of them, you are very rich. And so I think that's the the sort of dynamic that is much more prevalent in these countries than in um, the sort of geopolitical bias. I will say in Niger's case, by the way, um, the most likely trigger for the coup was sort of jockeying for position and a general facing potential firing from the president. So that to me, based on what I've done in my own research, I haven't been to Niger or studied Niger in depth, but based on my own experience studying coups, it's a lot more plausible to me that the wheels got set in motion when they looked at coups happening around them and saw limited pushback and also thought the general's about to get fired. Let's take action into our own hands. Yeah, I mean, as you say, I think the the, the, the president had announced an intention to to sack the head of the presidential guard, and and um, you know the the rest was one might say slightly predictable. Um, I suppose though that the context with these African countries most recently affected, particularly if we look at the Sahel, um, is about a decade of foreign military intervention, usually led by the French, but with, with involvement from European countries, the US, and, and certainly elements of, of UN as well, uh, at the end of which these countries appear to be more violent, uh, in greater instability, the, the, the sort of forces of jihadism and other uh, sort of armed militants appear to have become more powerful. Um, so is part of this, the, the coup is, is the attempt by the military to say, well, if we were in charge, this wouldn't be happening and it needs, it needs a firm grip. Yeah, I mean, this would be a plausible explanation if the coups were only happening in countries that were having security mm. crises and they're not. So the pretext is universal, right? I mean, as I say, you always have to justify it, at least with some sort of flimsy reason why the, you know, the, 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 president or the prime minister needs to be ousted. But 
very rarely would I say that that is the driving factor. Um, it sometimes does happen. I mean, there's no question that, you know, genuine crises are triggers for coups, but sometimes that's opportunistic and sometimes it's not. So sometimes they might actually have some sort of idea that like this can't go on. Um, and this happens a lot. You know, there's, there's one thing I should, I should mention is that coups are not uniform. So, um, social scientists, I think make a grave error because in quantitative data sets, I know it's slightly in the weeds, but, uh, they, they lump coups together. They say a coup is a coup is a coup, no matter where it happens, but a coup in Thailand, is super, super different from a coup in Niger. And the reason for that is because you have much more institutionalized militaries. Um, you know, the, the, the coups that happen in Thailand basically happen where there's a lot of planning in the military brass. And I'm, I'm mentioning Thailand because it's the most coup-prone country in the world. Um, and, and I've studied their coups a lot. But, you know, whereas in, in Africa, some of the times when I did field work in, uh, in Zambia, for example, there was a failed coup in 1997 I studied. You know, it was a ragtag group of about 50 guys, mid-level officers that nearly took over the country. And so you have totally different dynamics where weak institutions in sub, you know, sort of struggling sub-Saharan African states where the military is not as entrenched and so on, you know, th- these create different dynamics. And so this idea that, you know, these are the sort of heroes of the nation here to sort things out, it just doesn't match the evidence given that these coups are not exclusively happening in places that are falling apart. You talked at the outset about this idea of coup contagion. And of course, it's not that the the coup is happening because there was a coup next door, but it makes it easier to sort of justify and justify to yourself, I guess, if you see that the guys next door got away with it. So that being the case, um, should we be expecting more coups in countries, you know, in Western Central Africa that haven't yet had them? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's likely. Um, I think that there's sort of a, a moment for the international community to decide whether they want to have much more aggressive pushback against these military regimes or face the risk of more countries being toppled. Um, you know, it's it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. I mean, th- you know, this is not something where we can expect you know, out of the, the 54 countries in Africa for, for a majority of them to face coups. It's not likely. But over the sort of short to medium term, I do think that the longer that military regimes are able to stay in power and enrich themselves and sort of enjoy the trappings of power, the more that they are going to have uh, an appetite for it. And some of this is not exclusively on the international community. I mean, it's mostly, I think, something where the international community has to act. But when popular pushback is tied to international geopolitical pushback, that's a really potent combination. Because you do need to a certain extent to win over the the public. And um, Madagascar, for example, I've studied their coups in the past. They had a disastrous, disastrous post-coup environment because of how isolated they were as a result of the sort of international blowback caused mass poverty, uh, much more dire than what they were facing already, which was extremely severe. And that probably has done more to stop a, a, a current coup than anything else, because the public just wouldn't support it during that period. They, they said, look, this was so catastrophic. So maybe, you know, is, if Niger has a massive loss of um, economic prosperity, that there will be sort of a, a pressure from below from the citizens, as well as a pressure from above geopolitically. And that that sort of pressure could end up deterring others who would be would be uh, coup plotters in other yeah. you know, other countries nearby. You started at the outset there talking about 
this point about the way the international community responds. And of course, that points to a much bigger issue, which is the state of global health of democracy itself. Um, you know, whether we are looking at the United States and the aftermath of the Trump presidency, whether you're looking at a succession of prime ministers in the UK, none of whom who've uh, faced a general election, whether you're looking at uh, the rise of extreme and sort of populist uh, governments in Europe. Democracy is not having a great few years, is it? No, I mean, if you look at the data, most indices suggest that the world democracy indexes uh, show a democratic erosion or democratic backsliding basically for the last 17, 18 years, depending on how you count it and which which index you're looking at. So that means not that everywhere is becoming less democratic, but it means that the number of countries moving towards authoritarianism is larger than the number of countries moving towards democracy. So the world's becoming more authoritarian, basically. Now, there have been some you know, bright spots within that. There's countries that become more democratic from year to year, but the overall picture is bleak. And I think there are several reasons for that. I mean, all of them very complicated and, 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 and you know, not just a single soundbite. But basically, you have things like the sort of erosion of U.S. dominance. So you have a rise of authoritarian powers. I mean, the resurgence of Russia on the global stage, as well as the rise of China. You have the you know sort of fallout from the financial crisis and the rise of populism after that. Uh, all of these things have you know, sort of contributed as well as things like social media and the breakdown, uh, splintering of reality, which is, you know, quite important for <laughs> trying to understand how to make decisions in a, in a democracy. If you basically are fed lies, you're going to vote for people who are liars. Um, so all of that is quite bleak. I would say there's some trends, though, that are uh, are interesting around this, which is I suspect that when we look back on this period, sort of the you know, Trump era to the war in Ukraine and so on, that the backlash to, um, you know, Putin's war, for example, is going to solidify a democracy alliance that I think is very important for the 21st century. And I think the battle lines of the 21st century um, are, are being drawn in a way that was almost inevitable, but has been sped up between democracies and authoritarian regimes. So the way I see the world in a sort of big picture context is you have, you know, China and its very, very junior partner, Russia, and then some sort of hanger-ons or countries that are willing to do business with them or, or, or not align themselves who will work with them against basically the democracies of the world. And I think that's going to become increasingly clear as time goes on. That might provide some benefits in this discussion around coups, because at some point, the democracies need to have backbone and say, look, this is what we stand for. And, uh, you know, personally, I think one thing that would be very, very positive is trying to create things like economic trade zones and economic blocks um, that are tied to democracy. And of course, the European Union is the most ex successful example of this, um, enlarging, you know, sort of in making that a, a bigger part of economics, I, I think would be a very positive move in the sense of creating political uh, requirements for economic trade zones that democracies yeah. um, try to Of course, we're, we're, we're talking not just in the aftermath of the coup in Gabon, we're also talking in the aftermath of the G20 summit, the summit of the world's 20 largest economies. And at that summit, uh, one thing was very clear, which is that the the democratic view and the global north view, which sometimes overlap on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, was not one that 
commanded the floor in in the G20. And in in that space, clearly China is a big player, but you've also got India, you've got Brazil, you've got South Africa, you've got a range of countries that don't necessarily see the world that way. Um, when you describe this this kind of future that we're looking to, one of the questions I have is whether or not democracy continues to be an aspiration. Because it seems to me that during the Cold War, uh, the, the democratic countries succeeded in creating the idea of an aspiration to democracy that people in undemocratic countries would aspire to. Whereas now one wonders whether people aspire to live as if they're in Dubai or, or as if they're in a, you know, a tech hub in India, not necessarily um, in a sort of Western European democracy. Yeah, I think, you know, that argument, I think, peaked um, around 2016, 2017. And I think that's because if you look back to that time, you know, you have the rise of authoritarian populism, particularly in places like the United States and Brazil and so on. Um, you have democracies in disarray, and you have China continuing its unbelievable economic growth that sort of, you know, really was unleashed in the last three decades and so on, and hundreds of millions of people getting lifted out of poverty and so on, and all of that. Um, China's model, I think, is weakening. I think that there there are fewer and fewer people who look to China uh, as an aspiration, at least compared to you know six seven years ago. Um, and I also think that there is a fundamental strength that democracy will never lose, which is that people everywhere want eventually to have a say in how their lives are governed, and they're willing to not have that when the economy is growing at a rapid clip, and the second that stops. They start to want that a lot more. And so it's inevitable, I think, that that, that sort of demand, that thirst, um, will eventually prevail. I mean, it will prevail in fits and starts. And I don't think, you know, China is going to democratize anytime soon. But but I, I think that impulse is fundamentally human. So my view is that, you know, until the United States and until countries like Britain and others in, in Europe that have faltered uh, democratically in recent years get their act together. Yeah, I mean, it's going to slow down that aspiration. I mean, you, you look to the US, you look to January 6th, that is a very, very far removed um, symbol from, you know, what Ronald Reagan said when he left office, uh, where he said, you know, the US is a shining city upon a hill. Uh, for countries yeah. to to sort of aspire to. And whatever you think of Reagan and the sort of, you know, obviously there's many, many critiques to make of Reagan's foreign policy on, on democracy. What I would say is that when I traveled around the developing world, uh, you know, especially in the, you know, 2010 or so, that sort of area, um, people did aspire still to be, you know, like the U.S. more. And I think during that Obama era, um, you had a, a significant amount of sort of aspirational goodwill that was obliterated by Trump and obliterated by the sort of insane polarization the U.S. has now. So, yeah, I mean, they're tied. Like the health of democracies in the developed world is absolutely tied to the aspirational nature of developing countries. But um, over the long term, I'm still very optimistic because democracy cannot lose the argument when Almost everybody in the world wants to have some sort of input into how their lives are governed. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah. And of course, another element of this is is that question of um, migration to democracies. One of the interesting things that, that you see is, you know, you don't see much evidence of people yearning to go to live in uh, communist China. You know, they might be impressed by it. They might ad- admire its its sort of huge resource and, and capability, but, but they don't necessarily want to live under that system. But I guess migration is one of the most, is the sort of hardest, trickiest subjects in modern, modern political democratic uh, debate. And how how should democracies navigate these issues? Because it, it you know, for example, Europe um, is quite capable of, on one hand, sort of representing a high point of sort of modern liberalism and and you know offering quality of life to its citizens, but also pursuing incredibly inhumane policies around its periphery regarding migration. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's always going to be a bit of a mixed bag. Like democracies, there, there's sort of this this um, you know present bias we have where the past always looks rosier and democracies used to be, you know, so much better. I mean, democracies have always had their hypocrisy with human rights. There's always been democracies that have had foreign policy that has overthrown governments that were democratically elected. I mean, you know, we're recently at the 50th anniversary of the overthrow of, um, you know, Salvador Allende in Chile uh, done by the U.S. largely and so on. So, you know, this sort of record of democratic engagement, I think there's this this sort of rose-tinted glasses that that we put on when we look at the past. I will say that, you know, democracies just need to be honest about this stuff, right? I mean, the way the way that I put it to people is, you know, warts and all, democracies are still a much better prospect. And they're a better prospect for a variety of reasons. I mean, one thing that I always say is if you tore up, uh, you know, a, a pieces of paper with all the countries in the world, and put them into a hat sorted by whether they're democratic or whether they're authoritarian and said, you know, you can you can draw a piece of paper with a country's name on it. Do you want to draw one from the democratic hat or the authoritarian hat? I mean, everyone knows which which hat they pick. Right. They might get lucky and end up in Singapore, um, you know, which is a semi authoritarian state, or they might, you know, end up in a, a broken democracy. But the the odds are overwhelmingly better yeah. in the democratic hat, as it were. And the other thing I would say is that we often take for granted things like authoritarian growth. Um, first off, there's a lot of studies that have come out recently that have shown that dictators have been uh, manipulating their economic data. So I think that that is, is a seriously questionable premise to start with. And beyond that, I think we forget that a lot of the authoritarian growth that exists is export-led growth where countries are taking innovations that happen in open societies, making goods, and then selling them back to people who are more affluent in democratic societies. And so the counterfactual is, let's imagine we all live in authoritarian countries. Well, then we don't have 
both the open markets for trade, and we also don't have the innovation, and we don't have the rich people probably to buy. You know, so, so, so in other words, China's growth is to a very large extent dependent on democratic prosperity. And so, you know, the argument is not close in my view. And I think that, you know, I, I am perplexed by, we ha- by why we haven't in this moment of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, haven't had a person break out on the global stage from the democratic West to absolutely champion this idea. You know, I mean, this is something where you just have to be really forceful and say, this is why we back democracy and this is why we value it so much. And, you know, Putin has has showcased the sort of ugly face of authoritarianism. There's a lot of ugliness coming out of China. And now is the moment for a really vocal presence on the international stage, simply backing democracy. Of course, an element of this is is the the lived experience of those in in those in sort of uh, populist, so so not not authoritarian, but kind of authoritarian adjacent systems, and even you know at, at one level you could argue that the, the the Trump administration was that. You could argue that um, elements of of the way the the Conservative Party have ruled Britain have been in that way, and and they look fairly incompetent. They they don't look like they're going to win elections. Of course, Trump could you know Trump lost all the elections he contested except for the the one that got him in. Um, so, is there an element that that uh, authoritarianism in a sort of democratic context brings with it a kind of incompetence because it's not open to challenge, it's not open to um, you know new ideas and, and concepts? Yeah, so I've, I've coined this term uh, that I've written about in a few places called the dictator trap, and it's basically exactly this idea, right? So um, one of the things that's wonderful about democracies, you know, despite their flaws, um, by the way, I, I agree with Winston Churchill's quote uh, where he says that democracy is basically the, f- the worst form of government, right. except for all the other yeah. kinds that have been tried throughout history. And, you know, I, I think one of the great strengths of democracy relative to authoritarianism is feedback loops that create self-correction. So you screw up, you face backlash. Um, you screw up, people criticize you. So you learn that you screwed up. I mean, one of the things that I think best explains, and this is where I, I coined that term uh, dictator trap, um, Putin's invasion of Russia, is how is it possible that he made such a blunder and didn't understand that this was not going to be a three-day waltz into Kiev and you know, there wasn't just going to be a collapse and instantaneous, you know, glory and victory. And the answer I think that's most plausible is that after more than two decades in power, he purged everyone who told him hard truths, which is what all dictators do eventually. And so, you know, what happens is you end up with a incentive structure around power and authoritarian regimes, which is if you act like a bobblehead, you know, you just sort of nod and, and, and go along with what the dictator wants to hear, you stay alive and you get promoted. And if you criticize them, you you die or your family gets uh, into serious danger or you get fired. So the incentive structures around power and authoritarian regimes are not self-correcting in the same way that democracies are. And they can get away with it for a long time. I mean, if you have um, you know a system that is basically functional a lot of this sort of negative, you know, not having these feedback loops, it's survivable until it's not. And I think, you know, Russia is is an example where I think the wheels are, you know, how soon they're going to come off completely, I don't know. But I would guess that when you look at the downfall of the regime that's in power now in Russia, many people will point to the invasion of Ukraine and the bad advice that Putin got as one of the major catalysts to whatever eventually happens where he loses power. So, you know, I, I think these are things where, again, 
I want someone to champion this in blunt language and just say like, look, we make mistakes. The difference is when they make mistakes, they don't realize it. And therefore, the, the, the small mistakes become catastrophic, right? And, and, and that's the thing that I always think about. You know, it's, many of your listeners will not be, I'm sure, big fans of Liz Truss. But one thing I will say about the, the Liz Truss period, uh, to the credit of Britain, is that when she screwed up, I mean, she lost power in 49 days and her approval rating was 9%. And that is, in a nutshell, I think, what's good about democracy. Because imagine, imagine the sort of dictatorship of Liz Truss where it's two decades of that. And that's, you know, that's what a lot of the world that lives under authoritarianism deals with is rampant incompetence by fools, and they can't get rid of them. And I think that's the sort of blunt argument we have to make. Yes, the concept of a two decades long Liz Trust dictatorship will, will keep a lot of listeners up all night, I think. Um, I guess, and, and I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you, you know, the, the strength and resilience of democracy is shown in, in the, you know, the example of the Ukrainian people fighting for their own freedom as opposed to, you know, Russian, Russia having to rely on, cons, you know, convicts who are conscripted into, you know, cannon fodder units. Having said all of that, there is always this balance, there isn't there? We're, we're in a delicate balance. The, um, the prospect of another Trump presidency is not as remote as it should be. It is, it's relatively realistic. Um, the prospect of, for example, a, uh, far right candidate being elected in France is, is, is not, you know, is not off, off the table. Um, so when, when we look at those kind of branching futures, are there things that, that we should be sort of watching out for that, that point in one direction or another. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the 2024 election in the U.S. is going to be, I think, the most important election in my lifetime. Um, and, I, and I, you know, ho- hopefully, <laughs> hopefully that remains true as the future unfolds, um, because, you know, I think the, the perils of it are so enormous that I hope there's not a more important one. Um, but I think this will shape a huge amount of what comes around democracy and authoritarianism to, co- uh, you know, in the, in the coming decades. And, you know, Part of that is derived from the war in Ukraine. I mean, I think Trump would probably turn off the tap on a lot of the aid the U.S. is giving, which, you know, Putin is probably holding out for that possibility because it would shift the balance in the, in the conflict very likely. Um, but, but I think that, you know, the U.S. becoming a country where, first off, democracy is actively challenged every election, um, which, you know, under this Republican Party is a realistic prospect for the foreseeable future. That is going to have geopolitical ripple effects. Um, some of those ripple effects will be paradoxically positive. I mean, I think that the the sort of viability of a Trump candidacy in 2024 is going to cause some serious alarm bells in Europe, and perhaps um, you know, we'll, I'll believe it when I see it, but but perhaps a much more serious effort to have independent security in Europe absent the United States security umbrella. Um, over the long run, so that you know that would be very positive for democracies and for geopolitics. But it's it's something that if, if it came with a Trump presidency, you know, I, it, would, yeah. it would be much much worse, right? I mean, the the overall balance, the net effect would be catastrophic. So I also think it's worth pointing out, and just just to sort of you know capture the the dynamics for those who are. I think there's relatively few people like this in Europe, but those who are less worried about a second Trump term by saying, oh, the first Trump term was like bad, but not that catastrophic. 
It's important to understand the second Trump term would be totally different and much worse than the first Trump term. And that's partly because he wouldn't face the risk of re-election and therefore the accountability mechanism would be removed. But more importantly, it's that the Republican Party has radically changed since 2017 when he actually faced some accountability and pushback from within his own party. And, you know, some of the sort of Mitt Romney style George W. Bush Republicans of old, um, we're still in in charge. Whereas nowadays, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and people like that are ascendant in the party. They are much more in lockstep with the political base than somebody like Mitch McConnell or, you know, for them, Mitt Romney is an absolute pariah. I mean, they hate him. So it's it's the kind of thing where I think it's worth keeping in mind. Like this is stuff where the the authoritarianism of the first Trump term, which was real, would actually take on, I think, much more profound institutional significance and also could lead to the U.S. withdrawing from NATO. And I mean, that's that's the linchpin of international security. So, you know, it's it's that is the most catastrophic thing I can think of happening for the fate of democracy in the 21st century. And I think it's, you know, as you say, it's a realistic possibility. It's not a it's not yeah, a far fetched. And of course, um, as you mentioned there, you know, the Republican Party changing radically i you know there's there's lots of reporting about plans in place to strip out the 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 government institution civil service in america so that it's it is entirely uh, made up of of sort of partisans who are willing to do do trump's bidding um and it, but it seems to go to a wider issue here which is uh the relationship of modern conservatism in democratic societies to authoritarianism and of course you know i have to we all have to admit to our own biases i i am not a conservative with a small or a large c but it it this tendency which has gone much further in in the north america but it it, it you can see elements of it here in the uk the attempts to prorogue parliament um, the, the ways in which uh, people talk about the downfall of Boris Johnson as if it was some kind of deep state conspiracy when it was clearly due to his own manifest sort of personal inadequacies. Uh, and you can see it in other countries across Europe. So does the modern political right have a problem with democracy? Uh, yes. However, I do think that there is room for optimism here as well if elections go the way that I hope they will in the coming year, basically. So, you know, you have in the U.S., which is, I think, a unique case, um, a, a, a Republican Party that is likely to stay authoritarian in its sort of core base for the foreseeable future. And I think that is a huge problem. I don't think it's going to be corrected by Trump. I think that if Trump went to prison, it would be the first sort of step back towards normalcy. Um because, you know, there, there would be some level of accountability and so on. But it will also create extreme radicalization among his base where they say, you know, this is all a deep state plot and so on. Now, in Britain, I think that the Tories are likely to get wiped out in the next election. And there's a sort of, you know, through line here of the elements of Tory political strategy that sort of took democracy for granted and so on. You know, I mean, they're not popular and, and people are not stupid. They understand these things and they don't like them. They, and, and one thing that I would say is, you know, a strength of Britain uh, in terms of its democracy is that people do change their minds to go from, I think it was 44% of the population voted for Boris in the last general election to Liz Truss having like a 9% approval rating. That's showing that people are willing to change their minds even when they vote Tory. And you know that that is not true in the United States. Trump has had a forty percent approval rating forever, 
I mean, he, he basically has has a flat line from 2016 through 2023. So that is very bad news for the U.S. because if the evidence doesn't cause shifts in public perceptions of individuals, then the mechanism of accountability and democracy is gone. And I think that's happened in the U.S., um, which is why his, you know, sort of the cult of personality around Trump is so dangerous because when it's a cult of personality, you can never do wrong, right? It's always somebody else that's to blame. It's a long-winded way of saying that I think if there's actually consequences to right-wing parties that embrace authoritarianism, it does actually create a feedback loop. And I think there will be a lot of people in the conservative party, if they are indeed wiped out, that during a rebuilding strategy, um, start to think very carefully about how they sort of try to renew democratic institutions. Now, maybe I'm being overly optimistic. Uh, it's, it's quite possible. But it is one of the best ways of refreshing um, parties that, that make huge mistakes is to just destroy them electorally, which is based on the polls seems like what's about to happen. Yeah, uh, in, indeed, it, it looks that way. Um, we haven't talked too much about sort of continental Europe and France and Germany are both, you know, hugely significant in this space. Um, you've got uh, Macron, as, as is very common with French presidents, very unpopular towards the end of his time in office. And you've got the, the German government, which is very centrist, um, again, struggling with, with a tough economic situation and, and a kind of, you know, the, the questions around, around the Ukraine issue, where, where, which is, is a, a lot more complex in Germany, which is, you know, thousands of miles closer to Russia than, than we are on the Atlantic. Um, should we be worried about the health of democracy in those countries? Yeah, I mean, I think that they are, there, there's nowhere in the democratic world that is immune from authoritarian populism. And I think it's a absolute hubristic mistake to think otherwise. I think that the degree to which these threats exist in most European countries is sometimes overstated in the sense that there are pretty robust institutions. I mean, you know, obviously Hungary and Poland and so on are, are, are poster children for um serious problems with the breakdown of democracy, but those countries are much weaker on the democratic institution side of the ledger than Germany and France and, and indeed the United States or, uh, or, or Britain uh, ever were. So, yeah, I mean, it's a possibility, right? I mean, this is something where a lot of people would have said this could never happen in the United States, and of course it has. Um, but I, I still remain cautiously optimistic that the kind of catastrophic authoritarianism that has taken root in the Republican Party in the U.S., is less likely to become the norm in, um, in in most European democracies, and I think you know one of the things that helps that paradoxically again is the war in Ukraine because it has focused minds, I think, in a way that says, okay, which side are we on? And the sort of you know the far right that flirts with Russia or loves Russia, you know, the, 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 most people just don't think that way. I mean, you know, they they have these dividing lines where you know, far-right populism, authoritarian populism was able to ride the sort of anti-elite um, wave, especially after the financial crisis. I, I think that a lot of these societies are sort of waking up to the idea that, yeah, we can hate the elites, but like at the, at the end of the day, you have to govern. And one thing that authoritarian populists are very bad at is governing. And it may take some time for people to realize that, but they do eventually realize that, right? And I think that there are ultimately some benchmarks and measures of accountability that, as I say, cautiously, optimistically, um, I think will provide somewhat of a bulwark in, in Europe in the short to medium term. 
would I be surprised if a, a country in the European Union had a rise of an authoritarian populist party in the next five years? No, absolutely not. I, mean, I think it's likely. But, uh, you know, that is sort of part of the way that politics ebbs and flows. And for the most part, liberal democracy is alive and well in Europe. And I think, you know, it's it's something where we can sometimes think the sky is falling. And the, the sort of protector of liberal democracy is people who believe in liberal democracy and there's a lot of them in, in the developed world. And, and I think that's the sort of um, saving grace that we all have. Well, Brian, I think um, to hear an expert on democracy talk about optimism and a positive future is, is sufficiently unusual that it's, we should um, celebrate that. And, and I could just say thank you very much for talking to me today. Well, thank you very much. I, you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm usually the gym and gloom guy. So uh, I, I think there's a lot of very negative things that are happening. Um, I think there are some catastrophic risks that are on the horizon. But I do believe over the long run, I mean, democracy, has, as I say, it's, it's, it's fundamental strength is people want it. And uh, eventually that's going to win. Fantastic. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you're not yet a subscriber to this podcast, please consider becoming one via whichever platform you use to listen. It won't cost you anything, but it'll help us enormously build our numbers. And if you've enjoyed it, please give us a good review and spread the word. I'll see you next time. Goodbye. Behind the Lines with Arthur Snell has been a Vine Street production. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.